where do we begin? Where do we open, I mean? Where's our epigraph? Our first page? Our list of contents? For want of a better way of putting it, which bit of the world is headed chapter one? Take the pylons. Of course I've been following them. How could I not? After days and days of nothing but paper and paper shapes, they're the first to be different. The first new thing. The, that's with the small letters, not new thing, which is capitalised and very much to be avoided. <laughs> but the pylons are recognisable, part of a memory. Even without their wires, they form a thread that I can pick up and follow. But just because they're new doesn't mean that they're first. Just because the tangent I'm on happened to converge with the pylons doesn't mean that whatever sequence they're a part of has to start here. I don't know what the first sentence of a pylon line is. I don't even know if I'm going in the right direction. I might be following them backwards. I might get to the end and find out I spent all that time reading back to front. I don't know. I can't know. But what does it even matter? Whether or not pylons affect my knowledge of first, they certainly affect my now. Example, I used to pick my samples at random. Now, the pylons are my sample markers. Now I can manufacture myself a routine. Now I walk, I reach a pylon, I take a sample, examine and file it, sleep. And there's a now inside that broader now. My split second now. My knife blade now. Jammed between taking and examining and twisting to widen the gap. Now I am sitting on paper at the base of a pylon that is still inexplicably steel. I have a new story. I'll start at the beginning, read through the middle, and finish at the end. Because that is how these things are done. <clears throat> When I told the police I had nothing to do with Mary Maliner's disappearance, they didn't believe me. This wasn't really a surprise. Since childhood, I've always been one of the first called upon as a potential witness and suspect. When our mother confronted our sister and I about trivial things such as missing biscuits, her gaze would always fall on myself first, even if my sister had just finished kicking crumbs under the carpet. I am not sure why this is the case. I suppose I just have one of those faces. Poor Mary did not have one of those faces. Plain, forgettable, and not the kind of person prone to disappearing, as some are. The vanishing of the girl next door always draws a lot of attention, and, as Mary's neighbour, I was one of the first people the police took in for questioning. They asked me if I had anything to do with it. I said no. And this, in spite of my admittedly unconvincing track record, is perfectly true. That's not to say I don't know what had happened to Mary Maliner, or where she is now, only that I was not the one who put her there, and 
Quite honestly, I don't think I could be fairly punished for that. It took two days for anyone to notice Mary was missing, and then another day before someone called the police. I don't know if she would have been pleased or disappointed. Most people, I think, would hope to be missed. But then, Mary never mentioned any family that I heard of. No signs of a partner, never even brought home a one-night stand. She was, to all intents and purposes, quite invisible to all but myself. I spoke to Mary Maliner quite often. Often enough that whenever I sat down on her sofa, the cat would settle itself into my lap and start purring before I gave it so much as a scratch behind the ear. Mary liked to go walking, and it still frustrates me that I could never rely on being invited along. I knew her routine, how to tell when her work day had left her in a good mood, and how to steer the conversation to what she planned on doing that evening, and sometimes she would ask me to go with her, but more often than not she would politely, but firmly, turn me down. Foxtrot Hill was her favourite place to go walking. The fact that it was private land didn't seem to bother her, and neither did the signs that said things like trespassers will be prosecuted. I never heard of Mary being prosecuted by anyone, so I suppose she must never have gotten caught. When she started to go there more and more often, I wasn't all that suspicious. Not until her routine started to change. She would still leave the house right on time, but she would return at irregular hours that were irritatingly difficult to predict. When I called by in the evenings, she would be out, and I would be left standing on the doorstep. It was undeniably humiliating. The fifth time this happened, I took the spare key and let myself in by the back door. I like to look at people's bookshelves. It tells you quite a lot about them. Mary was obviously quite the romantic. Stacks of paperbacks with covers showing photoshopped men and women embracing against a background of red velvet, a well-thumbed copy of Romeo and Juliet covered in penciled annotations, Lolita, much the same, a little book of wildflowers on her bedside table, with a handwritten dedication inside the cover. 2M, much love, M followed by three X's. I put the book back down on the bedside table. The back of my hands were prickling, and my throat felt closed over and tight. I had thrown the book. I picked it up and put it back down. Then I picked it up again and put it back down in the exact position it had been before I touched it at all. I stepped back outside just as I heard Mary's key turn in the lock of the front door. I left without her noticing, and took the twenty-seven-minute walk up to Foxtrot Hill while she got settled in. The place was quiet, and undisturbed. Then I went back, and knocked on her front door. She had flecks of plant matter in her hair when she answered. She smiled, and I smiled. She asked me to come in, and I accepted. I asked her how she'd been. I hadn't seen her for a good while. She told me she'd been sick, and had lost her job. It had not been a good week. I nodded, and thought about the little book of wildflowers, upstairs on her bedside table. We went into the sitting room where we sat down, and I petted her cat. Mary talked, and I listened. She talked about the weather, she talked about the interesting birds she had seen on her walks. She talked about the local wildlife, the fascinating creatures one could find if one went to the right places and was quiet and watchful. She talked about her sister who had been more interested in wildflowers, self-publishing a spotter's guide, and giving one of the few copies to her. But, oh, she was so sorry, talking about her family like this when my own sister was. 
I told her it was alright, that I had fond memories of my sister, especially towards the end of her life. Mary still looked wretched, twisting her hands together. I took them in my own and promised her, really, it was okay. I meant it. She didn't pull away. I asked her what she had been doing, why she had stopped going to work. She began to repeat what she had said before. She had been sick, she had been fired, she had had a bad week. I cut her off. No, Mary, we both know that's not true. It's okay, Mary, I'm just worried about you. You've been so distant. Where have you been, Mary? What's wrong? What's so important that's up on Foxtrot Hill, Mary? She said it would be easier to show me. We walked in silence along the lane that bordered Foxtrot Hill, past fields left fallow and past verges of tiny spring flowers. I thought about taking her hand, but didn't. I thought about wrapping my hands around her neck and squeezing until her face turned red, then purple, then black, and her eyes started to bulge and her tongue started to swell and froth spilled from the corners of her mouth. I didn't do that either. Foxtrot Hill was something of an oddity. From the north, it seemed to be a fairly gentle incline, wooded most of the way up, but the trees hid the way the slope ended very abruptly, and beyond was nothing but a drop, no less sheer for the fact that it was overgrown. From the south, Foxtrot Hill reared up like a wave out of the gently rolling landscape. We took the more climbable approach. There wasn't much of a path through the undergrowth, but all I needed to do was tread where Mary did. The ground under my feet was soft and smelled of wild garlic. Clumpy ferns grew taller until they closed over our heads, giving the peculiar feeling of being inside despite the breeze. Mary stopped at what looked like a hollow in a bank of earth, not even two feet deep. Naked roots poked from the bare earth, uncomfortable and exposed as nerves. She had to get on her hands and knees to fit into the space, and, for a brief second, I was struck with the notion that she would simply stay there, curled up on her side, surrounded by damp earth and clay, sleeping. Then she turned to the left and vanished into the hill, and I was forced to follow her, or be left alone. The earth under my hands and knees sloped downwards. I could hear Mary Maliner calling up ahead of me. Her breathing sounded close and muffled. I could not see anything. The walls of the tunnel leant against me, staring me one way, then the other. Mary said little, only speaking when we came to a junction. And we did come to them, branching off in all directions. I don't know how she saw them, or how she knew the way. I don't know how I saw them. There was no light down here, less and less air to breathe. But I began to feel the emptiness of a diverging path or a higher ceiling. It wasn't a change in the air, or the echoes we made as we moved. Space was simply becoming tangible in a way it never had been before. We came to a nexus, where I could feel tunnels diverging at wild angles. The sense of space splitting off in all directions made me feel dizzy. I think I might have fallen if I had been standing up, but there was only just enough room to kneel. Mary was next to me now, the only warm thing in amongst all the cold. Here we are, she said. She wasn't talking to me. She said, it's okay. I've brought a friend. Come and say hello. Something poured in to fill the space I couldn't see. 
unfolding and stretching itself out and out. It grew out of the underside of the hill, spreading on and on and on, denser and darker, without edges or end, wrapping itself around Mary in an embrace that made me want to vomit. The whole creature, the entire mass, was impossible to see. What is it? What is it? I don't remember asking aloud, but I do remember Mary telling me that she didn't know, so I suppose I must have asked. Mary had stumbled across the tunnel several weeks ago when wandering off track to look for wildflowers. Of course, she hadn't gone in right away. She might get stuck or lost or trapped. She didn't think that anybody but myself would miss her all that quickly, but it never occurred to her not to go. She came back with a rope and trail markers and a torch that stopped working the moment she got past the first junction, and the things surrounding us both now had unfurled and filled the spaces in the dark, and it never seemed strange to her that she didn't run away. It was because it was lonely, she told me. That was why she kept coming back. She would sit in the dark for hours, and it would make a singing noise that was almost crying. Singing back seemed to help. The earth around her would be no less cold and weighty, but the fear of it would be gone. It would be cruel to leave it alone again. We stayed until it was as dark outside as it was under the hill. When I got home, I found that there was blood mixed with the dirt covering my hands. Some of the scratches were still bleeding freely. They stung as I smothered them in antiseptic, and that was what kept me from sleeping. The thing living under Foxtrot Hill liked Mary Maliner more than it liked me. I found myself going back again and again with Mary, watching it coil around her and take her in, and it never once touched me. It writhed over every inch of her, but left me alone. Mary said it hadn't trusted her either, not right away, and that was probably why it didn't want to touch me. I was new. I was a stranger to it. I repulsed this living dark earth cancer, and it didn't want to touch me. Mary said it would warm up to me in time. I wasn't sure I wanted it to. It wouldn't stop crying, that was the problem. It made Mary feel sorry for it, but all I could think about were those birds that installed themselves in other nests and screamed at the unaware parents to feed them. She went back and forth sometimes with books or little baby toys, or food for it to try. She always left empty-handed on those occasions, though I have the unshakable feeling that it never ate. Sometimes she took nothing at all. My phone would buzz on my bedside table at 3am, and it would be Mary asking me to come with her to keep it company. She always knew when it was crying. Cuckoo. That's the name of the bird. The thing was a cuckoo. Those phone calls never woke me up, because I would already be awake. For all that the thing in the hill couldn't stand to touch me, it grew inside my head just as it must have grown inside Mary's, and I would always wake when it began to cry. It was never a sound, not the kind heard with ears, but a thin, atonal wailing that twisted through my thoughts and smothered them with an alien distress. I began to dream about roots. Not roots like plants, but roots like teeth, like warts. 
They dug into the underside of Foxtrot Hill, burrowed through the earth and split underground creatures in two. I had that dreamer's understanding that what I was seeing wasn't literal. The roots in Foxtrot Hill were real all right, but if I were to go there and dig, I'd find nothing but natural tree root. It was Mary who first brought up the dreams. She thought they meant the thing was asking her for help. What she actually said was that it was asking us for help, but I wasn't fooled. She was including me in the us because she knew she needed my help. She didn't believe any more than I did that the thing was trying to talk to me. Her plan was to dig the creature out of the hillside. She had decided that it was trapped there, and that's why it was sad. She said it was our duty to try and free it. We were the only two people in the world who knew about this creature. I made some joke about needing a JCB digger. She looked at me solemnly and said she thought that would attract too much attention. She already had a couple of shovels in her garden shed somewhere, and that was all we needed. I hated the idea. While Mary was still outlining her plans for moving Earth, I moved out of sight behind her and picked up a glass paperweight from the mantelpiece. A globe, slightly bigger than a fist, heavy and solid and cold. I turned it over and over in my hands. It was clear, with a swirl of green through it, and full of tiny frozen air bubbles. One blow would surprise, two more would stun. Any more after that would make sure. Mary turned and smiled at the weight in my hands. Taking it, she told me it had been a present from her grandmother, when she had been too young to have any papers to wait, but too old for the usual toys. I would have preferred bath salts, she said, and laughed. We began to dig the next night. It wasn't as simple as just digging a big enough hole in the hill. Mary took control of the task with a firmness that almost matched how bizarre her choices were. Sometimes we would fill in entrances and make new ones. Other times we would carve out a new tunnel, ignoring the ones already there. She assumed I understood her own obscure logic, and I did not correct her. I would follow her direction until it was time to stop, then go home, shower, and dream of real-not-real real roots spilling out of Foxtrot Hill until I woke again. I tried to talk her out of it. I really did. I chose a time when we were well away from the hill to try and tell her about my fears. Paranoid it may have been, but I did not want the thing in Foxtrot Hill to overhear us. Or, worse, understand us. I don't think it could read minds. If it could, and it wanted to take Mary away from me, it would have done something about me a long time ago but it was better to be safe. She waited patiently while I talked, nodding intermittently as I reminded her how we couldn't know what would happen when we freed the thing from the hill. I told her how I felt responsible for her safety. When I looked at her, her eyes were glossy-looking, and I knew she was not taking in a word I said. I stumbled to a stuttering and undignified halt. She took advantage of me immediately, her hand found mine and gripped it tight, anchoring me to the spot as she tried to bury my concern for her with platitudes. She said she was grateful. She said she was touched. The pressure of her fingertips was the only real thing as she lied to me, telling me she could make her own decisions, that her mind was entirely her own. She thanked me, kissed me on the cheek, and left me there, staring after her, wondering just how cold you had to be to use someone in that way. I think I might have hated her in that moment.
I did, very briefly, consider going to the police. But I couldn't do that without incriminating myself. And, more than that, if others were to find a way into the hill, I'd be doing what it wanted. A thing living there would find ways to take root in them, as it had in Mary. My poor Mary, who had already spent so much time inside the hill, wrapped up in its dark. Keeping her there with pointless digging and aimless tunnels, it had all the time it needed to grow into her, to take root in her. And, when it was done, it would have her carry it in her head to where other people lived, with minds as soft and receptive as loam. And they would feel sorry for it, because it cried. The night Mary Maliner disappeared was cold and clear. I had left my jacket behind, hoping the cold would do something to rid my head of the numbing fog that crept through it, to allow me to think clearly again. But all it did was make me shiver so much that I could barely drive the shovel into the earth. We spent the night out by the steep side of Foxtrot Hill, constructing a new entrance, and then working out the best way to lay a turf and undergrowth back over it. When we had finished, Mary stuck her shovel in the dirt and came over to me. She asked me if I was worrying again. She told me that she knew I didn't like the feeling of something else being in my head, and she was so proud of me for sticking by her anyway. Lies and lies. I didn't know she could lie like that. She touched the back of my hand and told me that we had a duty, that we were almost parental in our responsibility, and it was then that I knew the thing in the hill had her completely, and that she knew that I knew, and did not care. It was her eyes. Her mouth was stern, her face impassive, but her eyes were deep, deep hollows, full of crisscrossed roots that went on forever and ever. I could still see them when she closed her eyes to kiss me and when she turned away altogether. I caught her on the back of the head with the sharp edge of the shovel, and she had a dark, wet line through her hair. She fell. The shovel was no longer in my hand, and she was on her back, and I was on top of her, and I hit her again and again until my arm was numb from the elbow down, and my shoulder burned, and my whole hand was slick and red. She was still breathing. I turned her over, no hollows, no roots. She was Mary again, my Mary, uninfected. I would take her home, and I would get her cleaned up and into new clothes. I would see to her head, and when she was feeling better, we could talk about how we were going to kill it. I needed a moment to breathe. The stars were icy pinpricks in the sky. I lay on my back, watching them through the dissipating clouds my breath formed in the cold air. The earth under my fingers was damp, and I found Mary's hand in the dark. I held it tight. Her skin was warm, in spite of the pre-dawn chill. I held her hand, and watched the sky until the edges of my vision started to swarm with sliding, illusory movement. Even when the movement began to call over Mary, I thought it wasn't real. A product of the stress we'd both just been through, or the cold, or the beginnings of exposure. Then Mary's hand was tugged for my own, and blood rushed from my head as I sat bolt upright. I was dizzy, alone, and helpless. Roots were spilling from the hill in a great, creaking torrent. 
I stumbled forward and they parted, knowing where my feet and knees and hands would fall and never letting themselves touch me. They wrapped around Mary, engulfed her utterly, and she slipped through my fingers without a sound. She vanished, and it vanished, in a cascade of earth that tumbled down and solidified into something impassable and dense. Nothing I tried left a scratch on it, not my fists, not the shovel, not the edge of a shattered rock. The god-awful wailing sound started up, deep under the ground and inside my head, and I screamed at it until it went away. Then I went home. The dreams never came back. I rather expected nightmares to tell the truth, but they never happened. But even as I spend time away from Foxtrot Hill, I can hear it crying sometimes. It's still in there, trapped and growing, and it doesn't even have the decency to let me retrieve her body. I hear her crying sometimes. I hear it crying. So, as you can see, none of this was really my fault. Well, I can't say that's my favourite sample I've ever read. Apparently, even in the end times, we can't escape the lazy scapegoating of vaguely defined mental problems. Ugh, the monster under the hill is probably supposed to be some kind of manifestation of the narrator's guilt over killing Mary. Or something equally trite. And worse, there's still nothing in here that would help make a pattern. This must be the 57th sample I took from the pylon line now, and they're all just monsters, and mood pieces, and poems about teacups, and incredibly detailed descriptions of bees, and nothing useful. Nothing connected, even though I'm taking that from the same place, and it all just might be useful. <sighs> no, 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 I just, I just need to be patient, that's all, that's all. As for this, into the book you go, my friend. My Anthology of Data. <laughs> I can see the dark creeping in. Of course, if you're listening, you can probably see it too. It's not as if this thing has much of a range on it any longer. But it feels better to say it out loud. To broadcast my observations. It beginning to get dark, and my saying that it's beginning to get dark, means more than just letting it get dark. It feels as if though marking the change is important. I'm not sure why. I should sleep. The next pylon in the distance is receding, and I don't know whether that's a trick of the light, or if I'll have more than a day's journey ahead of me tomorrow. If there's anyone listening, stay safe. Stay sane. I'll have answers for you soon.
Marion Dawn is produced by Darklight Radio, written and directed by Jay Waters and edited by Kai Letts. The voice of Monica Gray was kindly provided by Kai Letts. Listen to us on a dilapidated radio that you built out of scraps scavenged from the warped, decaying wasteland that your world has become, or just use your favourite podcast streaming service. Find us on Twitter and Tumblr at Darklight Radio, or on our website at darklightradio.com.